sitting on the sidelines is not a strategy. And just because that's what's comfortable, maybe that's what you've done before, does not mean that it's a good idea. What made you comfortable before, or it happened to work before, doesn't mean that it's the best thing to do right now. If you're not conscious about your investment strategy, you won't end up where you want to be, not financially or as a human. On this show, we interview highly successful investors and share how they overcame limitations to become unstoppable forces of success. If you're ready to learn what it is to be a conscious investor so you can end up where you want, keep listening. Conscious investor, can you time the market just right? Can you really like maximize how much your investment is going to yield just simply by timing the market right? This is a conversation that I'm going to have with my friend Alex. And I cannot think of anyone that is like better. Come on. He has a doctorate in this. Okay. Like this is his mojo, his jam. He is a professor of economics. Okay. So he knows what he is talking about, lives it, breathes it, written tons of papers on this and had copious amounts of conversations, obviously around just economics in general. But we were talking off air about passive investors and active investors sitting on the sidelines waiting to time the market. And I just said, you know what? I think this conversation is going to serve the conscious investor powerfully. Let's just dive in and let's go for it. So Alex, (laughs) I told you before we hit record, like we were talking about podcasting off air. And then I'm like, okay, it's going to be my turn to suck your brain a little bit because I'm excited about this. Thank you so much for joining me on The Conscious Investor. It's a pleasure to be here, Julie. And it's a pleasure to talk to you guys about economics. I have got to have an attendance policy in class. I got to get quizzes to make sure that students read the book. And so you wanting to talk to me about timing the market and this economic theory, I'm ready. I'm so ready. It's so exciting. But I'm very curious, before we dive into that conversation... What drew you into economics as a passion, pursuit, and study in life? I mean, you don't go through the ranks of education that you have just because mm-hmm. you're like, you know, I just think this sounds like, uh, I don't know, maybe it'll pay the bills. Like, what's the Yeah, thing? that's true. <laughs> that's a great question. No, that's true. And you can't just be smart to get a PhD in something. You really have to love it because it's no fun. And at some point, there are no more classes. You have to do original research in something. And so if you don't just love your subject, you're not going to be able to think up original research ideas and go out there and get them published. You can't just work harder and grind it out and create more original research. There's not like an established process to follow. So you have to just be in love with the subject. And what I love about economics, and by the way, I try and share this with folks every semester, which is why every semester... I say I want to teach at least one section of our intro economics class because I go to like these holiday parties or cocktails. They ask me what I do. I say I teach economics. I'm an economics professor. And I hear, oh, oh, I hated that class. I got a C in that class. It was abstract. It was boring. It was mathematical, etc. And I don't want that to happen to my students. So I want to be their first exposure and kind of draw them in. But here is what if I had to give the elevator pitch for why I started, why I got hooked on economics and why I want other people to get hooked on economics is because economics is a toolkit. It's like a toolkit. It's literally like a magnifying glass or a microscope or a set of glasses that you could put on 
to analyze, understand, make sense of an unlimited number of problems. So it's not a skill set that you use to solve certain types of problems. It's literally a way of thinking. We teach the economic way of thinking. And I will make fun of some other disciplines for a minute. Like There's not a political science way of thinking. There are different kinds of management tools, etc. There's not a management way of thinking. There is an economic way of thinking. There are economists thinking about everything from health to education to tax policy to energy to psychology and all they're doing, right? They're applying the economic way of thinking. So we're not just finance or accounting. We're not just thinking dollars and cents. The breadth of economics is about as wide as it can be, right? We're fundamentally a social science. So I love being able to have that toolkit and see what new stuff I could apply it to. And so, by the way, I can't help but share, my favorite book of the past two years is called Rage, R-A-N-G-E. It's written by David Epstein. And he writes about how people that are uh, most successful, defined as most innovative and well-known, these are people that did not spend a lot of time being a hyper-focused specialist in one area of study. And his thesis is that they developed range, the ability to take information from lots of different areas of study and synthesize them, apply them to new places because they learned a way of thinking and not just some technical skill. So I'll give you just a quick example of this, then I'll let you ask another question. Quick example, Steve Jobs, we all know as being the phenomenally innovative CEO, created a lot of new products and led Apple out of obscurity into the most valuable brand on the planet. But when Steve Jobs, a young executive, he dropped out of college and he's still going to class at night and he's going to calligraphy class at a community college. And people at Apple are thinking like, Steve, what are you doing? Going to calligraphy class, essentially an art class at a community college. What does that have to do with programming computers? And the very technical answer to what does it have to do with programming computers is nothing. But the right answer is it has as much to do with programming computers as you decide it does. And so Steve Jobs is in the calligraphy class. He's inspired by the different shapes and sizes of the fonts. He goes back and says, you know, if I make the pixels on Apple computers slightly rounded instead of perfect squares, I can program the computer not only to make different fonts, but to scale font sizes up and down perfectly. And Apple computers are the first ones to be able to produce different fonts and to scale them up and down, inspired by Steve Jobs' calligraphy class. And Apple got a real stake in the market as being the computer that designers and different artists use because of that original innovation on his end. He didn't learn that in a computer class, right? What did he learn? He learned some very fundamental things about art. He learned some fundamental things about computer programming. He put them together. And so in economics, I like to think that we're teaching the building blocks, fundamental concepts about the economy. Timing the market is going to be one of them that we'll talk about. And people can use those building blocks in literally an unlimited number of circumstances. That is such a cool story. And I wrote that down. I'm a reader also. I noticed your bookshelf. Is that a book book to read or an <laughs> audiobook? Because I do both. I usually have a book book and then I usually have something I'm listening to. 
Yeah, I would say that it's not so technical that you would have to have the hard copy of it. I think you could do that as an audiobook, but it's so good that you might want to underline some things and you might want to give it to somebody else. So I'm kind of a sucker for the hard copy for that reason. My favorite part of that book is where they give a bunch of college seniors a logical thinking test. And this is a well-known test that has been given across time and cultures to different people that are graduating from college. And they give it to all different majors. And they ask them to solve very simple logical problems that are laced with scenarios outside of their field. So again, just kind of bread and butter logical problems. You don't have to have any special training to solve them. But if you were a business major, you're not given a problem that's got a bunch of business lingo in it or is applied to a business scenario. Okay. So guess who scores the absolute lowest, lowest on that critical thinking test of any college major? Oh, golly. I don't know. I would say mathematician. I don't know. They are problem no. solvers. Mathematicians they're are problem solvers. Really, they're puzzle right. solvers. Yeah. They're puzzle solvers. And they're not taught about a specific kind of puzzle, right? They're taught, right. here are some rules that you can turn around and generalize. So they, we would expect <laughs> <laughs> so- business administration is at the bottom. Yes. Why is that? Because they're being taught more and more in these management classes, in my opinion, being taught business like it's some kind of technical skill, like plumbing or electricity or something. And you know who scores near at the top? There's not a comparison between the top and who's number two. And those are the economic students. And you would think the subject of what they're learning is not that much different. And it's not. But the economic students, they know a way of thinking right? They're always being thrown a new scenario and saying, use the abstract theory to make sense of this situation. They're very practiced in that. And guess what you need to do as an entrepreneur? You need to make sense of an uncertain future. And you need to make predictions about a market that other people have not made before, right? The economic way of thinking is key for being able to do that well. Oh, that's so fascinating. I've been curious about our conversation. I've been thinking about this for weeks and now I'm even more excited to just continue to dive down the rabbit hole because this lends itself perfectly to saying like, great, so can we time the market? Because I'm just going to be forthright and say, I've spoken with a lot of active and passive investors and they're like, I'm going to sit on the sidelines. I know the big dip's coming. And I said, well, did you invest in 2020? Everyone thought that was going to be a really like terrible year with the pandemic, but it turned out to be an amazing year. And they're like, no, I didn't invest then either. Okay, well, when's the last time you invest? You know, it's like, and so they're spending so much time waiting to time the market that they're actually missing out. I would love to hear the economic way of thinking about timing the market and if it's actually possible, which conscious investor, you've heard me say, you know, my position on this, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not going to spoil it. Cause I think he's going to say all the things that I probably believe and think, but eloquently and with far more detail. <laughs> all right. So I can talk for this for a long time, Julie. So you tell me what is too technical or when it gets uninteresting. The first thing I want to say is of course, as a logical possibility, can you time the market? buy low and sell high. That is possible to do, right? Of course, a crash is coming. A crash is always coming. The clock is right twice a day. A recession is always coming. And 
Is it possible to buy low and sell high? Yes, yes, yes. Don't misquote me on that. All right. The real question is, are we capable of doing that? Do we have the discipline? Do we have the knowledge to do the research? And then even beyond that, not just can we do it one time, but can we do that over and over and over again? Because we all know that you want to be an investor to take advantage of the power of compounding. Well, guess what? Compounding doesn't make folks rich in one year or two years or three years. You get rich via compound interest if you can compound consistently over decades. So if you are going to say, all right, I am going to be able to time the market, then you are saying that you've got the knowledge to do it, the discipline to act on that knowledge, and that you are going to be able to do it consistently. Okay. In addition to that, you've got to recognize that if you lose money, if you lose money, you have to work twice as hard to get back to even. Let me put some numbers on that. If you lose 10%, you have got to get your money now to earn 20% just to erase your 10% loss. So you, if you're going to get out there and try and beat the market, which we'll define that term here in a moment, then you better make sure that you don't lose because then you're that much further behind, right? You've hurt yourself in the long run. So I said, of course, it's possible. And then I laid out a bunch of things that might lead you to think that it's kind of hard to do. And that's the impression I'm trying to give you. It is very hard to do especially in a market that is efficient. And I'll tell you what that means. The more efficient a market is, the harder it is for the layperson to beat it. We need to define beat and we need to define efficient. So whenever you're investing, all right, you need to invest against some type of benchmark. You need some kind of benchmark to compare your performance against. And that benchmark is not zero. And the benchmark is not the rate of return that you could have gotten in your savings account. Here's what I think the benchmark is. The benchmark is the S&P 500, which is a collection of about 505 stocks that S&P or Standard & Poor has rated five-star because they've achieved certain profitability metrics consistently. And so every year, a couple companies are added to the S&P 500 and a couple companies are taken out for missing the criteria. And these are big public companies that everybody has heard of. These are places like Delta Airlines, Microsoft, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Whirlpool, Dow Chemical, etc. 505 of them. Well, you can sit at home, get an E-Trade account, which costs nothing, Invest in the S&P 500, which costs you so close to zero, it's effectively nothing. And the S&P 500, when you invest in an index fund, for example, you're getting a small slice of all those 505-ish companies in the S&P 500. And if you invest in that, on average, between 1979 and about 2016, the S&P 500, on average, returned about 11%. If you reinvested your dividends, I think the technical number is like 10.8. So maybe you subtract a couple points off for inflation and you give yourself a number like eight, nine percent. And so you say to yourself, that is what I could get by being as passive as passive could be, right? Sitting at home, 
sitting on my hands, putting my money into the S&P 500 and just closing my eyes. And you might think to yourself, that sounds kind of lazy instead of going out there and educating yourself. But let me tell you something, investing, this is one of the few scenarios where trying to become more of an expert is really pretty dangerous because people quickly become confident in their ability to try and beat the market. In other words, invest in a way that is going to generate a return over 8 or 9%. So 8 or 9% needs to be the baseline because that's what you could get paying no attention, just closing your eyes and investing the S&P 500. If you're getting anything less than 8 or 9, you've effectively lost because you gave up the opportunity to have your money in the S&P 500. And so in the financial world, whenever you beat the market or get a rate of return over what the S&P 500 has generated, not just in a given year, but over the long term, over multiple years, we call that generating alpha. That is at a rate of return in excess of some benchmark, usually the S&P 500 is alpha. So number one, right? If you want to be an active investor, your job, you better beat the S&P 500. And let me tell you how hard it is to generate alpha. Is it possible? Of course. Are there people on Wall Street doing it? There are. Can you study economics and business and stuff and figure out a way to do it? You can. But let me just tell you how hard it is to do by example. If you look at hedge funds over a 10-year period, 99% of hedge funds do not beat the S&P 500. 99%. Here's why it's so hard, Julie. Here's why it's so hard. Because you've got to pay those folks a management fee, whether they make money for you or not. And so already you're a couple points down before they've made you anything, a couple percent down. And then if they lose one time, right, they have one big loss. That's so hard to recover from. Now, if you look at actively managed funds, for any like one year, there are tons of them that beat the S&P 500. Over five years, there are tons of them that beat the S&P 500. But again, we don't care about generating alpha for one year or five years. We want to beat the S&P 500 for our entire investing time horizon. Otherwise, what's the point? Why are we investing all of this time and effort and risk researching, trying to find an active investment unless we're getting alpha? So beating the S&P 500 historically incredibly difficult to do. And that's because the public equity markets, fancy word for the stock market, is hyper competitive. Anybody can play in it. Anybody with a computer can play in it. That means you got people, smart people with lots of money, 24 hours a day, all around the world, researching and placing bets on different companies. If you go and you buy a share of stock from somebody else. You know what? That says somebody else is willing to sell it to you. Don't think because it's like you're buying it on a computer that it's just coming out of the air. No, no, no. Somebody else is willing to sell it that to you. So what you're really saying, when you go buy an individual share of stock, like if you go buy Facebook today, you're saying, I think that this share of Facebook is fundamentally undervalued. And I think that it is undervalued to the point where everybody else on the planet is wrong. Because if everyone else thought it was undervalued, they would also be buying Facebook today and shoving the price up. 
So when you go out and try and beat the market, you have got to have some kind of insight on a given company that literally nobody else has. Is it possible? Yes. But don't fit yourself into how hard that is. And keep in mind, when you try and do that, you're giving up the opportunity to invest in something passively, right? You've got to have that 8 or 9% baseline. So I'll cut it off there. I've talked wow. to her. I love the idea. And I think in the commercial real estate investing space, mm-hmm. people oftentimes you'll see a sponsor team present their prospectus and it's including, mm-hmm. hey, these are projections. I really appreciate mm-hmm. and value that concept of having a benchmark and saying like, okay, well, if I invest my money elsewhere, a lot of times I will hear active investors in commercial real estate state, well, your money in the bank is losing or sure, what are you going to make off of savings account? And we'll kind of make these type of comparisons that I really think that that is a sobering reality that active investors and passive investors need to be aware of is what's the benchmark? Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. can I make somewhere else with less effort potentially? So let me flip the script. Like I have a couple mm-hmm. of questions. Um so many cool questions. I do want to ask, I'm going to come back to my second question. My first okay. question. Okay. Second. And that question would be then, what do we say for passive investors? Mm-hmm. What benchmarks should they use on their investments? Mm-hmm. Should they be comparing to the SP 500? And should mm-hmm. they be sitting on the sidelines saying, okay, I'm just going to wait this one out because there are a bunch of notes that are coming due and the finance market is tight and making a lot of those rationales? Hey, conscious investor. Often the well-intentioned hardwiring of our past prevents us from moving forward at full capacity. We doubt ourselves. We remind ourselves of who we were told we were instead of discovering who we were created to be. We lack courage to move into the life we're meant to lead. And often, instead of stepping into our full potential, many find themselves living a masked life, concerned with other people's expectations and opinions of their lives. Conscious performance coaching clients discover their potential is far more than they anticipated. Through conscious performance coaching, you will connect with your potential, gain lasting momentum, collapse your timelines, and well, hey, every day feels like play. Stop playing small and step into your full potential. Join the ranks of those who have stepped into their dreams, launched successful businesses, and become unstoppable forces of success. Click the link in the show notes and apply for a free coaching session today. Okay, well, listen to me. First of all, If you are sitting out, like if you're going to be an investor, period, then your job is to find the place to invest. I'm not saying hold no cap. But what I am saying is that recognize when you are sitting on a bunch of cash, that is a guaranteed loss. Inflation, we've only seen deflation like prices overall go down. We probably don't even know what that word is, deflation. We've seen that like three times in the last 100 years, like sustained over more than a couple months. So what that means is that holding on to cash is a guaranteed loss. You hold on to cash for one year when inflation is 4%. That means you've got to earn 8% the next year just to break even. So if you're holding on to cash, you are just indulging yourself in somehow feeling protected, right? So the point is you should be looking for somewhere to protect yourself getting 
some kind of return. Maybe that's a lower return, or maybe you look to put additional safeguards on where you're putting your money. But sitting on the sidelines is not a strategy. All right. And just because that's what's comfortable, maybe that's what you've done before. Just because that's what's comfortable does not mean that it's a good idea. And just because what made you comfortable before, or it felt right before, or it happened to work before, doesn't mean that it's the best thing to do right now, or that it's the best thing to do going forward. Just sitting on the sidelines, holding lots of cash, just not a strategy overall. Recognize that that's a guaranteed loss. And all of the folks that say there's a crash coming, I'm holding on to cash. It's like, okay, if that's your actual position, then answer these questions for me. What are the three metrics you're looking at that tell you there's no crash and it's time to invest? Like, have you set that criteria aside and you know when to jump in? And if you know what those criteria are, then what are you doing to try and unearth that investment opportunity today? And nobody has an answer for that because it's just mental laziness to say to yourself, there's a crash coming. And so I'm at home sitting on my hands, right? You want to indulge in that laziness. That's fine. Just recognize that is extremely costly to not have your money compounding. And just because you're not pointed with a bill every month that says, hey, you're losing opportunity cost is real, even though there's not always a price associated with Oh, wow. That's powerful and insightful. And like you said, most people are not going to be able to answer those three questions or produce any Mm -hmm. rationale that is based on facts and knowledge and understanding. The one time that I did sit on the sidelines, it really was mental laziness. I will totally Mm -hmm. accept and receive that. (laughs) And you just got to call it like it is. And of course, you can be investing in stuff you don't understand. And be mentally lazy too, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm against mental laziness in general, not just the sitting on the sidelines part. Right, right. Absolutely. We were talking and you're like, there's this Forbes 400 list. These amazing Mm -hmm. people, right? And you said, like, how successful were they with timing the market? I'd love to know more. As soon as you mentioned just this Forbes 400 list, I'm like, okay, wait, I'm just going to have to ask and conscious investor, we're going to go down this Mm -hmm. curious rabbit hole together. (laughs) Yeah, sure. So this book came out several years ago called Capital in the 21st Century by Thomas Piketty, who's a French economist. The book is like 500 pages and it's full of a bunch of really incoherent economics and bad data that was not received well. But and the thesis of the book is that the rich just get richer because once they own capital, they keep generating a wealth and the poor people can't get a hold of this capital and they just start living a subsistence wet world and the gap between the rich and the poor grows. And economists know that this is just nonsense, third grade objection to capitalism. And I thought to myself, It's just such an easy, mentally lazy thing to do is to assume that once you own some kind of investment, like an apartment building, that it's this goose that lays golden eggs for forever. And you don't have to do anything. You sit back and get rich. And if you're one of the few lucky people to own one or gets connected to someone else that owns one, then you're just going to get richer and richer at the expense of everyone else, which is just not true. 
And so I thought to myself, you know what? I am going to look at the richest people in the United States, which are on the Forbes 400 list. You probably have heard of, and you listeners have probably heard of Forbes magazine. And in the 80s, they started keeping track. I think it was 1982 is when the list first comes out. And they start keeping track of who the richest Americans are. And so I thought to myself, the people on the Forbes 400 list, I understand they're only Americans. These are some of the smartest investor, entrepreneurial business minds on the planet. These are the people that are connected. They've got the most political influence. They've got the best accountants. They've got the best lawyers. They've got every advantage that any investor could have on the Forbes 400 list. And I thought to myself, I wonder if the people on the Forbes 400 list are managing to grow their wealth at a rate that generates alpha beyond the S&P 500 benchmark. Because of course, Piketty, the guy that wrote this nasty book called Capital in the 21st Century, if the rich are getting richer, certainly the people on the Forbes 400 list are doing great. So I pulled up the Forbes 400 list and I started poking around. I need to get this published. And um, I haven't thought about it since I first pulled this data and then our conversation today. So I got the date on the Forbes 400 list, 1982 to I think 2012. And I first asked myself, how many people managed to go up in rank on the list? Because by the way, if you own a successful business, it's not like it's guaranteed that it just keeps producing money for forever, right? Like the tallest building in the world and not that long ago was the Sears Tower. Like most people have never bought anything at Sears today. And the most valuable stock on the stock exchange, or I don't know that for sure, so I should just say one of, was US Steel. But US Steel is just a shell of a company right now. And on the Forbes 400 list, they're Rockefellers and other big American dynasty names on there that have gone down on the list over time. Their billions of dollars are not a guarantee that they will keep increasing their wealth because, of course, they have to get it invested successfully. And a lot of those people didn't even manage to grow their wealth at a rate that beat the rate of inflation. And of the people that managed to go up on the list, there were around 40 of them. Of the people that managed to go up on the list and managed to increase their wealth at a rate that beat the S&P 500, right? And I think in that exercise, I used about 10% of year. There were less than a dozen people that managed to do that. It's very hard. Now, this is over a 30-plus year period, and there should be no surprise to anybody. Like I said, 99% of hedge funds over a 10-plus year time horizon do not generate alpha. They do not beat the market. It is extremely, extremely hard to do. What does that mean for people that want to do a little active investing? It means, number one, you realize how hard it is. What's the take, the practical takeaway from that? You make sure you're the expert in one thing. It's hard enough to generate alpha, right? So you need to be the expert in one very niche thing if you think you've got any chance at generating alpha. 
Wow. That's just amazing. The extensive research that you've done. And now I want to read your whole paper. Please finish it and please. <laughs> okay, <my> okay. <laughs> I've got some slides on the data because I gave a talk on it once and I'd be glad to send those to you. For those that are very interested in this topic, great book called A Random Walk Down Wall Street that you should get that discusses this. So let me ask you this. All of this said, because I looked at the time and honestly, I've selfishly been engrossed in the conversation or listening, quite frankly, just absorbing because you're very articulate and you're able to really give substance to this topic very specifically and deliberately. And it's absolutely fascinating. I was not an e-com person. And so I've had to learn over the last several years, I've had to force myself into this. Let me be like pliable. Let me learn more about economics. And it's so fascinating as you've been alluding to and and describing Mm -hmm. it applies Mm -hmm. across the board in life in so many different ways. And Mm -hmm. when you start looking for it, you can see it. And so I still feel like I'm not even a freshman, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not even in like a 101 class. I'm like in the remedial, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm loving it. All these book recommendations with all of this said. Mm-hmm. What would your best advice be for those looking to invest passively in the commercial real estate space? Mm-hmm. So, by the way, as somebody that is buying commercial real estate and who is taking other people's money to buy commercial real estate, I must think that I have some chance at generating alpha. And I also must think that if there was a way to generate alpha, commercial real estate is the way to go. And I do. And I do. Because I just think very abstractly, like if I could kind of conjure up or hypothetically invent the best investment, I would think to myself, I want something where there's growing demand. I want something where it's very hard for the supply of it to expand. I want something that is going to perform well when the economy grows and when the economy contracts. I want something that is resistant to technological change, meaning I can't imagine what Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, Facebook are going to invent that would destroy demand for it. And I want to invest in something that pays cash regularly. The more regularly, the better. Because if it pays cash regularly, it's productive. And if it's productive, it's insulating me from inflation, which is the greatest tax on all of us. And so I want you to know, gold does not meet all those criteria. And gold is historically, give you some data on it, has not protected people. It's a terrible hedge against inflation. All these commercials I see on TV, protect yourself, buy gold. It's like, do any ounce. If you can't find it, I'll be glad to send you some up. Do any ounce of digging around does not protect you from inflation. Gold values have not at all kept up with inflation whatsoever. So I set out those criteria, right? Resistant to recessions, limited supply, growing demand, technological change can't disrupt it, all these things, pays monthly cash flow. And then I'd love to be able to buy it with leverage, buy it with debt to magnify my returns And if it's fixed rate debt, that further insulates me from inflation. You look at all those things and the investment that I see check all of those boxes in a way that provides more upside and limited downside better than anything else is multifamily real estate. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is that 
think that everybody ought to have that in their portfolio. And there are lots of reasons why you want to have multifamily real estate. I think that with the right operator, you can generate alpha with multifamily real estate. And what that means, though, it also is it's not good enough to just own multifamily. You've got to own it with the right operator and with the operator that is conservative enough in their underwriting to understand just what they're up against, right? Up against consistently generating returns that are above that S&P 500 average. And those people are absolutely out there. And everybody should be exposed to that. Mm, I couldn't agree more. And it's great as we wrap this up, Conscious Investor, Alex is also an active investor and he is resonating with you. You need to make sure that you are reaching out and that you are, you know, like getting on his investor list so that you can be up to date and current with what is taking place and opening yourself up to those opportunities to invest. Because remember, generally speaking, most of the people that I bring onto the show aren't going to just have random strangers coming into their investments. They too are very <laughs> mm-hmm. consciously investing, which means that they are ensuring that they understand who their investors are. So you want to make sure that you take that time to schedule that time to talk to them. So Alex, mm-hmm. what is the best place for people to connect up with you? I'm trying to be active on LinkedIn. So you mm-hmm. can find me on there. My group is called Villicus Capital, V-I-L-I-C-U-S. Villicus stands for steward in Latin. And so we're at villicus.capital is our website. And you can get on our mailing list there. Uh, we're a little different than traditional multifamily in that I am focused on doing hotel conversions. So looking for either extended stay hotels or underperforming hotels and converting those to workforce housing. That's where I think that there's less competition from other people in multifamily. And hence, I think there's a better opportunity to generate alpha, which flows nicely into our conversation. And I think that there's a limited supply of workforce housing because it's impossible to build it. It's just too expensive. And there's growing demand for that as more people crowd into apartments of all types. They can't find that $800 to $1,000 a month clean, efficient micro apartment in most major metros. And so that's what we're focused on finding and investing in. That was a topic that I was like, oh, I really want to discuss that with you because it's something that (laughs) I have looked into and researched and even walked different properties to see, can we make Mm -hmm. this work and such? So definitely Mm -hmm. such a great Mm -hmm. way to meet the need of a community to serve people. And it's something so essential and necessary. And I feel, not to sound ideological, because I'm an economist, I like markets, right? And I like entrepreneurship. And I am fired up about our ability to create affordable housing without having to take any grant or subsidy or accept any kind of government restrictions to do well for the investor and create a badly needed product in the marketplace. And I don't know how else you create affordable housing without government help, aside from the hotel conversion. Mm, Yes. It's capitalism at its finest. Private money always finds a way to solve problems and generate Mm -hmm. (laughs) a profit at the same Mm -hmm. time. I Mm -hmm. love it. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Alex. Mm -hmm. This has just been an absolutely fascinating and fun conversation. And I appreciate and value your time. So just to recap everybody's homework, get Range, R-A-N-G-E. That's by David Epstein. 
And if you want to know more about the passive investing versus active and just how hard it is to beat the S&P 500 random walk down Wall Street, and if you're like Julie and just looking to nerd out more on economics, there's a great 100-page book, Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. That's free online. It was written in the 40s. And it goes through like 10 chapters of the economic way of thinking, all applied to really simple everyday situations. There's no math whatsoever. That's It should be on everybody's reading list. If you're into business or investing in any capacity, you're going to enjoy that. Oh, thank you. And I am a fellow reader, avid reader. So I'm like, oh, great. Amazon, here I come. <laughs> yeah. Amazon and Audible, yeah. here we go. <laughs> yep. Yeah, absolutely. Let me say one more thing about investing. And I tell my students this all the time. I cannot think of a higher ROI than a book. Like you oh. go on Amazon, these used books are three, four, five, seven, ten dollars $10. Like, can you even calculate the value of the knowledge that comes off of that. And then imagine giving that book to somebody else, the good that that could do in that person's life. And if they give it away, but I try and encourage everybody to have a minimum amount that you're spending on books every month. Just like we force ourselves to eat right and go to the gym, et cetera, because we're investing in ourselves. The books are the same way. Even if they pile up in your office, like they are in mine right now, and you haven't gone through them all yet, who Cares the ROI is that high. Get out there and spend ten bucks and buy three used copies of those books I mentioned. Oh my gosh, we are such kindred spirits. I mean, reading—I literally just <laughs> mentioned to somebody yesterday. I'm like, just read, and I rattle. I'm usually giving book recommendations, and it's oh, like, okay, one more book. Like, one more book. Is that okay? Oh my yeah, gosh, one more book. We really are kindred spirits. <laughs> this is like what I usually do. Okay, okay. So I haven't finished this yet. Okay. I'm reading it right now on grand strategy. And I love it so far. It is based on a book, or I'm sorry, it's based on one of the most popular classes at Yale, which is an introductory history class, all about how different leaders have applied and misapplied strategy through the ages. And the author does such a good job putting these different historical events into a narrative and tying them all together. It's such an easy and thrilling read. I'm only like a third of the way through, but I can't wait to finish my work at the end of the day so I can read more of it. And I think it's been out. It won a Pulitzer Prize. It's been out a couple of years. On Grand Strategy, John Lewis Gaddis. Check that out too. I recommend it. Oh, definitely. Love it. Conscious Investor, thank you. I know you've enjoyed this episode. And this is really not a topic that many people in the investing space, particularly the commercial real estate, are discussing openly in this way. So make sure if this is mm -hmm. resonating with you, share this one with one of your passive investing friends or one of your active investing friends. Just share it around and let's help spread the word on thinking in a different way. And if we haven't had that conversation yet, what are you waiting for, Conscious Investor? You and I need to have a talk. One, because I love the listeners and I really love getting to know you. And two, it's really important. If you want to invest, if you want some different connections in your life, those are things that I love to do. But I can't do that until we connect up and actually have that conversation. So go to the show notes, schedule a time for you and I to pop on a phone call. And until next time, live big, love bigger, and do great things. Overwhelmed by apartment syndication, but want to learn more? Let me help you press the easy button. 
head over to threekeysinvestments.com and download Syndication Made Simple. I explain simply how the process works, who's involved, and how you can get started today. You're smart, and with this simple guide, you'll be able to understand the process. Head over to threekeysinvestments.com and download Syndication Made Simple.